but it's really neat, you know, as the company is growing and seeing all of these um, gifts and talents in, in my brothers that I haven't really seen because we haven't really done anything, this type of business or this type of craftsmanship coming together is really super fun. You're listening to the Art and War podcast with your host, Mitch and Nathan. Mitch is a former Airborne Infantry squad leader who now spends most of his time coaching soccer. Nathan is a professional illustrator and an avid shooter with a couple of years of Canadian military experience. Together, they run the Seaburn Art page. Enjoy the show. Realistically, anyone that, you know, we've totally doxed twice now. Um, Oh, good heavens. um, Yes, and, uh, well, we've we've doxed him a ton of times, but he's, he's missed his name twice, but at the same time, Anyone who cares enough to know his name knows all of our names and social security <laughs> numbers. So it's true. I did see that Facebook deleted a whole bunch of face recognition data today, or at least they announced that they did, which means that they are either about to get in trouble for something or someone else is about to get in trouble for something. And uh, Facebook just wanted to preemptively get ahead of that. <laughs> oh my God. We, we oh, should, I don't like that at all. We should talk. Oh, to I everybody. don't like that even a little bit. Yeah, we should. No, it's everybody. Uh, tech guy. It's, it's it's incredibly uh, terrifying when suddenly Facebook is like, you know what's dangerous? Face recognition data. We just deleted many terabytes of it for your safety. It's like, uh-oh. But you had it to begin with. Yeah. Well, they assured us that there was not an issue, but then now it's being deleted, so means means something. Yeah. It, it's, it's Similarly, remember a couple weeks ago when Facebook just went offline? And I brought this up during the podcast then, too. You know... So at the same time, you know, Facebook's down, Instagram's down, a bunch of things go down, major cellular telecommunications outages in the the United States. And I'm just, the first thing that came to my mind is like, is this it? And the second part of the, of that came to my mind is this will be very good for people, I think. Yes. But oh, at the same I, time, that, I enjoyed it. Yeah, same. Absolutely. Um, the, the first thing that came to my mind, too, was... Uh, the the fact that it happened during the whole whistleblowing thing, and which I guess is still going on, that's not a coincidence. Yeah, I, I don't know anything about that, honestly. I know Mark Zuckerberg is constantly in front of Congress, and I always wonder why, but I never care enough to look into it. I don't know. He's he's a lizard man. Yes, <laughs> I, I've said this before. If if there's any lizard men, like they might all be lizard men, there might only be one lizard man. But if there's a lizard man, it's Mark Zuckerberg. It's it's interesting. He seems to be getting yellower as time goes on. He looks more and more like Data from Star Trek every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, our our editor always gets mad at us for never introducing the guests right away. So today, we're, oh right, um, it's fine. Yes, yes. Yeah, today we got Isaac Bakken. Um, he's a doer of stuff and things at T-Rex Arms and yes. uh, a doer of electric bikes and <laughs> a nerdy engineer, yeah. if you will. Yep. Also has a very yeah. good podcast, T-Rex Arms, uh, T-Rex Talks, which is uh, on, you know, anywhere you listen to podcasts, I guess. In theory, yeah. Yeah, well, it's good to talk to you guys. So uh, I have listened to one episode of your podcast. And I'm obviously- so sorry. <laughs> I, I, I was going to catch more up with the style of the podcast, which you guys generally talk about. Um, so I did listen to the, the one episode that you guys did without any guests. It's probably not a great idea. But in the middle of that podcast, you were talking about me, which was so weird. I've never heard myself 
I've never heard myself talked about in the third person in a podcast before. Like, I'm not saying I got out of my chair to look behind me, but I did do a quick 360, like just subconsciously like. (laughs) (laughs) And confirm Mitch was outside the window. I was in the bushes. (laughs) But uh, yeah, you guys had some questions related to things. So this is not. um, Yeah, we, we have interacted on Instagram, which is weird. I'm not a fan of Instagram, but I have actually uh, interacted with a bunch of people uh, that I've met on Instagram and, and I've really enjoyed that. So yeah. uh, as much shade as we throw at Zuckerberg and as problematic as Instagram is, I actually have really enjoyed my uh, my time getting to meet people in the gun industry and like-minded people through through T-Rex on Instagram. So uh, I, sh- I should throw that out there after, after saying terrible things about Zuckerberg earlier. Terrible, but true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just a moment ago. That that's interesting. I I view social media kind of like I view, for example, like telecommunications or anything. Social media is just such a like a monolithic behemoth that takes up so much of our lives, and we use it for so much. It's really hard to get away from it. And you're right; it does have really redeeming qualities in terms of just like meeting people, getting connected, etc. But oh, sorry, Gatorade burp. Ah. It, we've wanted to talk to you though for a, a while like not just over instagram because yeah. we, we talked over instagram i think uh periodically but i remember watching your lives when you would sit under a tree i think you were in a in a chair sometimes you weren't and i remember thinking to myself i'm like this is the type of the type of person that i would like to interact with and just kind of like pick his brain and get to know about him just and and that's kind of our whole <laughs> podcast i know you listened to our episode where there was no guests which I, I brain dump half the things that we say on the podcast. I don't, I don't remember anything. That yeah. we, I, I think I, I listened to that episode afterwards. I don't listen to all of ours, but I, it was pretty good, I think, I want to say. Yeah. So um, I personally am not a huge fan of people rambling to themselves podcasts. I like I like monologues to be structured, driven, et cetera, or maybe live Q&A, which we often do. But uh, two people or three people talking and and being kind of rambly and thinking out loud, I do find very interesting, um, not yeah. just to get to know people, but listening to people think out loud is always kind of interesting and revealing um, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I think when we when we started, we had a couple episodes that we ended up deleting because we were I felt like we were trying too hard to. Yeah sound like we knew what we were talking about a lot of the time about things that we didn't really have a place to be talking about. And we were like, why are we even, why are we doing this? Why are we going to try and change everything that we've been doing for the last couple of years with the page of just being a genuine, you know, uh, as, as genuine as we could, why are we going to change it up for a podcast? And we ended up scrapping a couple episodes and now it's just, there's not really any structure. I remember you're not the only guest that asks like, Oh, what are the topics? And I never know how to answer. <laughs> yeah, it's I always like, I don't like, know. I just want to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you guys seem like, so one of the things that I appreciate you guys, both the, uh, you guys as, you know, human beings, like actual, like persons, but also uh, what you're doing on Instagram and what the podcast is, is it is an extremely normal, uh, very pretentious free thing that you're doing. You're teaching people stuff, um, bringing uh, your skill sets to bear, whether they be the knowledge that you are imparting to people or the the artwork that makes things more understandable than just, say, photography. 
Um, but at the same time, in a very uh, transparent way that I appreciate in, in the gun industry, I mean, this is true of, I think, every industry, but in the gun industry in particular, there's a lot of, um, I don't know, there's, there's just a lot of work to, to put up facades, maybe. There's just a lot of things like you have to do this this way. This, this topic needs to be treated this way. And having people just sit around and be like, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe bikes, maybe electric bikes would be cool. Um, or uh, like when I was, you know, when I was up in Canada doing such and such of this happened, there's a, and I think that there's a strong element of that in, in T-Rex. Uh, any, any, any group of people that starts a, a company like T-Rex and then calls it T-Rex Arms, uh, we don't take ourselves super seriously. And I feel like what you guys are doing on Instagram is kind of, uh, I don't know, I feel like tonally there are a lot of similarities there. So, uh, yeah, I, I am eager to have a, a regular human conversation <laughs> and just and just hang out as opposed to like, well, we must do a, a, a brand combo crossover and uh, make sure that we synergize both of our market audiences. <laughs> oh so, uh, yeah, that, that nothing makes me go to sleep faster than corporate talk. How do you do, fellow kids? Yeah, we're, exactly. We're, working yeah. within the industry with Mira, I have noticed that there is a lot of exactly what you said. Everybody's like, oh, well, we can do this and then we can cross promote and do all these really cool things. And I'm sure it's great for marketing and all that. I mean, I know it is because I see it happening and it is good, but it feels like if I wasn't this thing, then you definitely would not give me the time of day to just talk to me. And <laughs> yeah, I, I hate that about the industry. I really do. Yeah, and I think that that's that's not the whole industry for sure. I've met a lot of really cool people sometimes in business relationship contexts, which that sounds super corporate speak when I say it out loud, but also just through Instagram. And I think that you see this both both real and fake, like um, like YouTube collaborations. Sometimes it is a very calculated way for two channels to try to leverage each other's diverse market space, whatever's. And other times it's people who are just like, oh, you're a cool dude. I would love to do a project with you. Um, or this guy over here is neat. I bet you the people that like my stuff would like his stuff. So um, yeah, there, I think there's a lot more room for that in in the the uh, the industry. And I, I feel like I am talking about stuff I barely know about in some ways because T-Rex is a very young company. We haven't been a part of the gun industry per se for very long. And so there's all kinds of stuff that has happened before us, uh, stuff that happened in the early 2000s, stuff that happened in the 90s, stuff that happened in the 80s that shaped a lot of the companies that exist in this space and shaped a lot of the ways that companies do things that we weren't here for. We hear about them kind of around the campfire, so to speak. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it's it's been fascinating to be in this uh, the gun industry. And that was one of the things I wanted to pick your brains about is uh, what it's been like for you guys to kind of break into that. Mitch, you go first. <laughs> good and bad. It's been good and bad. Much <laughs> like much like yourself, I have met some really great people. And you know, I'm I'm working with one now, Nathan. I mean, we met um, you know, through, through Instagram. And then we started, you know, this page, he, without him, my content would still be making really terrible memes and making walls of text with information that is really boring to read and not easily digestible. Oh, and, buddy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I met him, you know, getting to talk. I, I think every one of our guests that we've had, it's always been people that we just either wanted to get to know more or like more. 
And there's so many. Um, there is a very toxic side where, you know, if something happens, it turns more into like that cancel culture that we always make fun of. Um, but there's always, there, there's good and bad. It's a, it's very much a double-edged, double-edged sword, but I'm enjoying it. I'm really enjoying <laughs> it myself. Yeah. I think it's a neat place to be. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of me, I, I didn't actually intend on being part of this industry at all. It just kind of happened. Um, <laughs> or a community or anything like that. You know, I was reading Mitch's work for a long time, you know, that back when he, it was the walls of text guide and don't beat yourself up, Mitch. Uh, I, I liked him quite a bit. Hence, you know, why I was freaking reading him. Um, never really intended on being part of it. And one day, you know, Mitch gets bent, comes back and I go, Hey, you know, you, you want me to, to draw one of these guides for you? you? You want me to like add some visuals and, you know, the collaboration started. It's been a good experience so far. I'm really surprised and very thankful that people enjoy the stuff as much as they do. It's, it's definitely yeah. more of a friendship first. Yes, 100%. Yeah, and I um, think that's one of the things that I enjoy most about it because we could get rid of this yeah. page and we would still talk. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> we'd still communicate. We'd still talk with a lot of the people that we've met. So it's Yeah, very, we did get rid of the – well, we didn't get rid of the page, but we didn't have the page for a month and we just still just didn't talk. Yeah, I, re- I remember yeah. that, yeah. Mm. I mean, I don't remember you talking, but I remember the page being gone for a month. <laughs> yeah. I hope you don't remember us talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isaac yeah. is everywhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, other, other than that, like the experiences in the industry so far, great. Absolutely great. Getting to meet people like you, for instance, whole bunch of folks, ba- basically everyone. And you know, I knock social media a ton as well. A ton. I think it's one of the worst things that's happened to this generation. But fuck me if it hasn't actually actively improved my life. So. Yeah, it's. I think it's like a lot of tools. It's a double-edged yeah. sword, like all technologies um, when you combine it with cultural developments that uh, that sap people's um, discipline, it's negative. But if you are actually able to use it properly, tons of opportunities come out of it. I mean, and of all people, I should not be criticizing uh, social media. T-Rex Arms exists because Lucas started an Instagram page. Uh, like all of our marketing and success has come through Instagram and YouTube. So, uh yeah, as as terrible as those corporations are, it's pretty <laughs> yeah. pretty, pretty hypocritical of me to yeah. point some of these things out and yeah. bite the hand that is sort of feeding us. Of course, that hand is also hitting us occasionally. So yeah, it's like some good and, you know making teenagers deal. kill themselves, but uh, give and take. That's that's yeah, you know. yeah. Well, but no, I, I absolutely agree. Yeah, no, it's interesting you bring that up though because I'm curious before. T-Rex arms is a thing. What's going on with you? What are you doing? Cause I, I, I know vaguely, oh. I remember we've talked about it a little bit, but you have a very interesting past that I feel like isn't talked about too much. And now I want to know more about it. <laughs> yes. So, uh, this is the weird thing about the internet. Um, if you Google, uh, around, you can find out a bunch of stuff about people, but there's this black hole that is the early nineties. If you look for stuff that happened in the early nineties, it doesn't really exist. Earlier than that, stuff gets documented because it has historical value. And then recently, everything is on the internet. Um, so I worked on a whole bunch of stuff that isn't really searchable because it wasn't, it's sort of a little bit pre-internet. So a lot of documentaries worked at a couple of TV stations in New Zealand um, and uh, just was more involved in video production, uh, film and television work. And 
one of the things that I really appreciate from that, I appreciate a lot of stuff from that, but it enabled me to dip my fingers into a whole bunch of different, uh, different industries. When I was working as a commercial video guy, I would do um, marketing videos or, or commercial videos for you know, people in the medical community, people in the military community and so forth. So I got to feel, uh, get a little bit of a feel, very surface level, but a little bit of a different feel for a bunch of different industries and go to you know, trade shows for this industry and trade shows for that industry, banking trade show, credit card trade show. Um, and um, yeah, I, I really appreciate the, um, the experiences that I've had through that. And the reason that I was in uh, media at all is because that was my dad's business. That was something that when I was uh, about five, dad came home from his job and wanted to, to be home more and started a business that was video production. In the early 90s, we lived in the Washington, D.C. area. And so he began doing largely political media. So he would do campaign commercials. He would do political documentaries. He would do uh, various stuff for think tanks in, um, in Washington. And um, so that's what I grew up doing. And he started that business so that it was something that he could actually uh, control and involve his family in. He, he was also homeschooling us. So when I was quite young, I got to go along to be part of some of these film shoots. Well, they were video shoots. I only uh, did a few film shoots. These video shoots with different people and interview um, different folks that we were interviewing for documentaries or making their campaign commercials or just talking about um, different projects with. So uh, I, I really appreciate that. I think that was just a tremendous thing. And you can see, I think, uh, in all of the Bodkins, um, uh, and I would say all the way down to Lucas, but in some ways, especially Lucas, the work, uh, the work ethic that our parents put into us. Um, but because I was the oldest, I spent more time with dad doing media stuff. And that was generally what I had been doing uh, most and primarily. Uh, my brother, David, who is now the CFO of T-Rex, uh, got more into he did a lot of video stuff, but also a lot of computer and IT stuff uh, when we were living in New Zealand. And then uh, Lucas didn't help out uh, professionally with video a whole lot um, because of how much younger he was. But he got a bunch of that stuff through osmosis. He's a phenomenal videographer in his own right and editor and, uh, you know, has really mastered that that craft, even though uh, I, I don't remember him helping on a whole lot of the projects uh, when I was young and he was very small. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I got, uh, got into video and film as a career. Um, and yeah, it, it has led me, uh, through a bunch of different, really interesting experiences and opportunities. Um, but in some ways I, I feel like T-Rex, uh, what we're doing with T-Rex is not all that different, even though I am far more focused on the manufacturing side than the video side. It's still a huge part of what we do. And, uh, even, even some of the stuff that we were doing, one of the very first video shoots that I went to with dad that I was a part of was a video that we were making for gun owners of America. So Larry Pratt was shooting, uh, shooting different guns. There was, I'm trying to remember if I could remember the bill, it would help me figure out exactly when this was. I think it was like 11 or 12. And I was um, running audio for the shoot where Larry Pratt is talking about uh, the Mac 10, the terrifying Mac 10 11. And then he's holding up a little Browning 25 shoots the same bullet as this gun and, and demonstrating ballistic. I don't think it was ballistic gel. I think it was watermelon. So yeah, this is not like a vast departure from what I grew up doing stuff that's been, you know, our family has been involved in for years and years and years. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. <laughs>
long, long answer to that question. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that covers a lot of the, a lot of the ground. So um, a lot of the stuff that, uh, you know, our, our parents brought us up in and, and our dad let us be a part of uh, really heavily informs what we're doing today, even though in many ways it looks very different, you know, manufacturing, making stuff out of plastic, retail stuff, e-commerce, um, all those things are pretty new. How's it going, people? My name is BR. I'm the producer of the Art and War podcast, and I'm here to tell you about the Lads Patreon. Not only do we want to continue improving the quality of what we can do both here on the show and on Instagram, but we also want to elevate what we can do as a team. To that end, we are looking at acquiring property and starting a cult in the wilderness so we can shoot at trash and be left alone. So that's what the Patreon's going towards. Of course, the Art and War podcast is no charity case, so what's in it for you? Our Patreon subscribers enjoy five different tiers of exclusive perks, ranging from all of the content the lads would post on a pre-Zuckerberg Instagram, downloadable high-resolution guides, behind-the-scenes info like guest schedules, spicy memes, and at our highest tier, get monthly art commissions created by Nathan himself. You can find our Patreon via the link in this episode's description or in the Seaburn Art Pages bio on Instagram. This would usually be the part where I say, let's get back to Isaac from T-Rex Arms, but uh, Mitch and Nathan forgot to do the AWS and applied gear plugs. So now I gotta do that. So anyway, AWS belts. Nathan and Mitch love their SMU belts. Mitch himself has been running their gear for years across deployments and heavy use at home long before any sponsorship deals took place. He digs them. If you're in need of a good pistol belt, go and grab one of them via the AWS link in the description of the show and use code RNWAR10 all connected for $10 off. We also have applied gear to thank. If you're in need of a rigid EDC belt for daily carry, check out their link in the description and use code ARNWAR5 for $5 off any applied gear belts. Thanks for listening, people. Now let's get back to Isaac Balkin from T-Rex Arms. So were you, were you always homeschooled or did you go to a public or a private school and then that's when your dad was like, okay, I'm going to do this videography. Um, and do all this work, and we're also going to homeschool you. Uh, I was always homeschooled. Okay. So, uh, and I'm pretty old. I am 40 years old. So I was being really? homeschooled pretty early on in those days. Yes, I'm, I'm very old. Uh, but um, that was not at the very beginning of kind of the, the recent homeschooling re- revolution in the United States, but it was fairly early on. Um, and so, yeah, never went to school. Uh, none, uh, none of the siblings went to school. Um, I tried to, uh, do a college correspondence course, but it was right after we'd moved to New Zealand and the passport and citizenship and, you know, foreign student thing was just too much trouble. So, uh, that wasn't working out. I started working uh, in New Zealand instead and never ended up actually pursuing any of that after that. So (laughs) yeah, (laughs) no, it's, it's good that you were able to get your hand in all those different, you know, you know, fingers in all those different pots, because it's that, that experience that you don't think translates over. I found from getting involved in so many things myself, there's little things that you don't really think about that translate very well into everything that you want to do. You can take those past experiences mm-hmm. and apply it to what you're doing now or what you want to do or what you want to build. And I, I think having that diverse you know, set of experiences really is an invaluable thing that, I mean, a lot of, I don't want to say a lot of people don't get, because I'm sure there are a lot of people that do, but it seems like people ever since, you know, they, they, they're in high school, 
And then, okay, you're going to college. You have to pick what you're going to study and then what you're going to study you have to do for the rest of your life or else you're not going to make enough money to pay off what you just studied. And Mm -hmm. it makes a very linear path for a lot of people that I think, I don't know, people seem to be, I think they're missing out on a lot of different things that they can end up doing. Yeah. And it's, it's certainly not rare these days that, that people will start doing job A and have to switch careers. Like, um, I forget what the, the studies say, but it is very common for people to need to switch careers. But I do think that it's easy to fall into this trap of, I started off doing job A, now I'm doing job B. It's a new thing. And uh, there probably is a ton of transferable stuff. If you apply your mind to really figuring out, like, what have I learned in automotive repair that I can move over to this thing over here? And I have this theory that I've been developing. So I um, am beginning to homeschool my own kids. And so I'm thinking a lot more, uh, I'm trying to remember all the stuff that I should have paid more attention to when I was a kid. Um, but I'm thinking more about like how to teach people how to learn, specifically very small children. But eventually they're going uh, to be full-sized humans. How do I teach them how to learn? How did my parents teach me uh, how to learn? Because I really think that, this is the main thing that education should be doing. And it's the thing that schooling is often the worst at, you know, the, the school system generally is like, well, you need to pass these standardized tests and then you get to put in this box and it isn't really focused on teaching people how to learn. And my, my current operating theory is to give, um, to give people shelves in their brain that they can put information on. And so when they come across a new fact or they learn a new thing or they have to grab a new skill, they already have a shelf to put it on. They already have kind of an organizational structure for things. And I think that my parents did a really good job of that, maybe not specifically consciously. Um, And maybe it was that just as I was doing different stuff and needing to learn different things to help dad with the video business, he did a good job of explaining like, you need to be organized about how you actually acquire this skill and how quickly you need to figure out how to do this. But I think that that is, uh, yeah, it's, it's a tremendous, uh, it's a tremendously important thing, especially in the, in the world that we live in, we see people having to change careers a lot. The world changes, you know, retail has trained, changed drastically. Like when I was a kid, malls were a thing. (laughs) Malls were a very important part of your life. When I was young, there was no internet. There were libraries. The world has changed drastically, not just for young whippersnappers that I can't relate to because I'm so old, but also like (laughs) my parents have seen drastic economic changes and people that are my parents' age have had to switch jobs uh, across, you know, kind of amazing generational and technological gulfs. And this ability to learn new stuff and adapt um, is, I think, super important. It's the main thing that I want to teach my kids because I have no confidence in my ability to predict which skills would be useful for them to have in 2045. Um, outside of, you know, foraging, scavenging, reloading, (laughs) stuff like that. How to hide from Skynet robots. Yeah. I'm working on uh, thermal, uh, defeating thermal sensors. I think that's something that my kids may need to know. (laughs) We're going to talk about that more after this podcast, because that's something I've been looking into a lot and I wanted to pick your brain about. Thank you for reminding me. Taliban figured it out a little bit. They, they used to what, cause they figured out that we have drones and what they used to do. They, um, I mean, maybe they still do. I don't know. They used to dig holes and then they would take wet blankets and just kind of like put it over that hole and they would put weapons. They would put themselves in there and it, it worked pretty well. Um, 
we started to look for things that were a little bit cooler than the sand, but at night, you know, it's, it's a desert for the most part. It gets really cold. It snows. Um, and it, it's, it's difficult to tell. So they kind of, they kind of figured it out at a very basic level, but it would be interesting if there was a more, pra- I don't know. I don't know if I want to say practical, more accessible way. Cause we're not on the like desert. You're uh, sort of planning for something. Yeah. <laughs> I got no plans for anything. I'm I'm a yeah. I'm a no, broken. Me neither. None, none, none of this is premeditated. Okay, no, none. <laughs> none at all. Please don't drone strike me, <laughs> especially in Canada. Yeah, that's the thing. In Canada, they're getting on people for their social media opinions now. So if you have an opinion yep. that they don't like, that's a no-no. Big no-no. And and we're we're a few years behind the UK, and you're a few years behind us. It's in the UK, people are getting arrested for you know saying slurs on social media or misgendering their kids. Oh yeah, took your advice on the whole energy drink thing, and I'm detoxing. No, no energy drinks, nothing. I'm uh, <laughs> doing it with uh, South Pew Luke. Uh, I think the videographer from Mod Light. We're both uh, cutting out caffeine entirely for like three weeks, and I feel fucking great. It's wonderful. Okay. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I have not stopped drinking caffeine for years now. I used to try to detox once a year, and. Yeah. I don't know, around child number two, that just didn't become an option anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm kind of <laughs> hypocritical. Uh, but I am very critical of rain for no other reason that Luke loves it so much. So between the two of us, I feel like we don't exactly even out, but I'm not hurting the company by talking about how dangerous their product is because Lucas is just holding it up. Uh, yeah, <laughs> constantly, all the time. So don't, don't take all of that as seriously as I make it sound. And uh, yeah, but yeah, I, no, I won't I'm, lie. I'm though, drinking I, a I, lot I, of coffee. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the American rain scares me a little bit. I found out it's got double the caffeine that Canadian rain yeah. has. 300 yeah. milligrams, baby. 300 fucking milligrams. That's if what I we run off rain, of. America runs off of caffeine. America caffeine. <laughs> apparently. <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts is pretty dope, though. It's, uh, I, I mean, I've only ever had it in like airports, but. Uh, you're reminding me that I, I should actually detox again. It's, it's good to take a month or two off of caffeine rebuild those neurotransmitters or neuroreceptors or whatever they are and then uh then get back to that sweet sweet caffeine <laughs> yeah i i missed it i i won't uh every, every couple of days i'll go to tim hortons i'll buy myself a nice large decaf and just sip it slowly thinking about the good times you know all of two weeks ago I, oh you know decaf will kill you fast though man <laughs> Wait, what <laughs> just Wait, are, are you fucking with me <laughs> uh I, I, I have heard that, but I, I have no information to back it up. I'm just like, yeah, I'm going to get you off of all non-water drinks. All, all <laughs> non-water drinks. Essentially, I'll just be being have, having water with like a little bit of salt put into it. Um, tea? Don't you know that all the people who drank tea back in the 1700s are dead now? <laughs> You're killing me. I just poured this. I got my, I got my plain Jane water in my blue cup. Before we started talking about super secret stuff that nobody will ever hear about, but should be jealous that they didn't hear about it, um, we were, we yeah, were kind of talking really about spicy stuff. Yep, we, we were we were kind of talking about you know our families and and, and things that we've done you know kind of before set, setting foot into the industry. One thing that I really want to ask you about, and this might go into super secret territory again. We'll see. I I find that. If I tell people my story about how I how I was brought up, you know, when I was two or three years old, my stepfather gave me uh, unloaded twenty two, and was like, "Here you go, this is yours." 
And I learned responsibility like that. Um, you know, I, I, I learned to grow up in a very different way in a different time. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm relatively young, but, um, you know, growing up and doing that. And sometimes I tell people and they're like, Oh, you were, you were abused. You have, you have terrible parents. And it's always kind of bothered me to a point where I'm like, eh, whatever. I don't, I don't really know them too much. But one thing I've noticed about T-Rex arms and just, just you and your family in general is you, you are very transparent about a lot of things. And that brings a lot of criticism. And I feel like a lot of that criticism comes because you're in the public light and because you are transparent about it. Does that, does that bother you? Like whenever you get some of those comments or some of those things get brought up, how, how does that affect you and your family over time? If oh, at all, that's a good question. Yeah. So the, the, uh, that's a very interesting question. I've actually given some thought to this because, um, our, our time in, uh, uh, I don't know. So, part of the reason it's weird to hear you guys talking about me in last week's podcast or two weeks ago's podcast is I really don't think of myself as being so much in the public eye. Now, if you ask, I'd be like, well, well, why? Yes. Our Instagram channel does have a lot of views. Yes. Our, our YouTube channel has a lot of subscribers and we I'm on there occasionally. Um, but I really, uh, don't think of myself that way. Uh, but I think it is a very, I think we're in the public eye in a very small sector of a small industry. Like you guys are well known in a small chunk of the industry. There's a soft drink in New Zealand, world famous in New Zealand. Um, you guys are world famous in a small chunk of the firearm industry. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and T-Rex is world famous uh, in this little, this little subculture of gun people. And uh, I, I really appreciate that. Uh, we have that, that platform and that opportunity to talk about stuff. But yeah, it definitely comes with uh, a downside of um, people being very free with their uh, opinions, which, I mean, I guess, I guess there's no way to separate these. If you have the opportunity to talk to tens of thousands of people, you also have the opportunity for tens of thousands of people to give their very candid opinions of you. And there's really no disentangling those things. And so um, it shouldn't, shouldn't, complain about it too much. But I do think you, you do have to compartmentalize a little bit and, and kind of separate the different kind of, kinds of criticisms. Um, and there's there's definitely criticism that is meant to be constructive criticism and should be accepted as such, or, or at least appreciated as such. It may not always be correct. Like there are people giving us business advice for T-Rex, like you should give more product away. Yeah, maybe, maybe so. You should give all your product away. Yeah, no, probably not. That's not really how you stay in business. And, yep. and then there's destructive criticism that is, is meant to be destructive. And I think that that should also be analyzed too, because destructive criticism that, that's meant to, to, um, to be discouraging and to destroy might still be right. Like it still, it still could be a legitimate criticism that they're bringing up, but you also can't live with it and internalize it. So I think that the incorrect destructive criticism you got to throw away the factually correct destructive criticism you should pay some attention to, but also uh, only give it a certain amount of credence. And then the constructive criticism that is correct is probably worth its weight in gold. And then the constructive criticism that is uh, not factually correct, you should also throw away. Um, but 
but be encouraged that people are trying to help and, and do actually value you or your company or your goals or your mission enough that they would like to pitch in, even though their boneheaded ideas are, are <laughs> would not help you accomplish those goals. So I think that that's a very important thing that uh, we also learned from our parents, because when our parents began homeschooling us, not to make this episode entirely homeschooling centric, um, well, but, we are very pro-homeschool. Yeah. We, it's we gonna have be a uh, about homeschooling. <laughs> yes, I haven't listened to that, but it's uh, I have downloaded it. It's, uh, we're going to keep coming back to that, I think, because there's a lot of, it's a, I think there's a lot of parallels to a lot of different things. But when my parents began homeschooling me, it was still early enough that there was a lot of stigma related to it. And so my parents got a lot of criticism for their decision to homeschool us kids in the States. And then we moved to New Zealand. Um, similarly, uh, and so I've seen my parents deal with a lot of criticism, not to the tune of you know millions of YouTubers um, throwing shade at them, but I've watched my parents deal with this gracefully, uh, and I've watched my parents deal with um, political persecution as well, because my dad was working in Washington. Um, I, we got to see a lot of kind of the mudslinging up close and personal, and most of it was with people we were working with or, or the dad was working with and we knew vaguely, but some of it was aimed directly at dad. And so this is something that all of us have seen our parents deal with. And um, so, yeah, hopefully we've learned some really good lessons for them, but um, I don't really have a definitive answer for your question. These are just some thoughts and things that I've given, um, as the, as the company has grown and the types of criticism have kind of ranged and varied from thing to thing. Yeah. Given, given some thought to this for sure, because my kids are growing up with this. Um, they're going to watch me. They're going to watch me have a good day because somebody said something nice to me on YouTube and they're going to watch me have a bad day because somebody said something lame to me on YouTube uh, if I'm not careful. And I really don't want them I really don't want them to see me swayed. I mean, I don't want to be the kind of person who is swayed by random YouTube comments emotionally. And I don't want them to see that. And I don't want them to be affected by that either. So this is something that I have thought about kind of more and more, both as, as T-Rex has grown, but also just as there are more people watching T-Rex and uh, more people watching me. And uh, yeah, so some random... <laughs> Yeah. Random unconnected thoughts on that topic. Yeah, I, I, I like how you brought up your kids because I, I recently just had a daughter and I went back and reflected on a couple of the um, death threats that, that we have gotten on our page and things that have gotten a little personal <laughs> with us. And yeah, there there's a couple <laughs> seconds, even maybe a couple minutes where I reflect on it and I feel something inside of me. And I'm like, wow, mm -hmm. like this is just some random person on the internet, but they, they kind of got to me for a second. And I think of it because I have a daughter now, you know, when, when somebody says, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're going to come kill you if you stand in the way of progress and your way of thinking is standing in the way of progress. I, I know that that threat holds very, very little, if any credibility behind it. But I think of my daughter and, mm, yeah. and there's a lot of personal criticisms and attacks on, on you and your family. And I, I was thinking about that before we recorded, I was thinking and trying to put myself in your position. And I was, I was thinking, I'm like, wow, like I've only gotten a couple, you know, Lucas, Isaac, your, your, you know, David, uh, all of them, they, I'm sure they all get a lot. 
and I see it. I know they get a lot. So I, I was just curious on how you how you worked through that in your head because there's it's obvious that very little of them probably hold any credibility at all. But mm-hmm. over over time, the sheer quantity, I imagine, you know, kind of lingers for a little bit longer than it felt like it should. Like mine mm. it lingered for like a minute or two, and I'm like, this is much longer than I should be paying attention to this. Yeah. I will say one thing that is a little rough is uh, criticisms of Lucas actually bother me more than people who are critical of me, partly because people are people who are critical of Lucas are more uh, young and stupid and say dumber stuff. <laughs> people who are critical of me usually have a pretty good point. They're like, hey, you got that ham radio thing totally wrong. <laughs> Cause you're an idiot. And it's like, Oh, <laughs> that holds water. It sure does. Um, yeah. It, Lucas gets very vicious, uh, vitriolic kinds of attacks. And those bug me a lot, partly cause they are more extreme, but also cause he is my little brother. I mean, he's, he's a grown man and he's married and he's a super deadly shooter and he's the founder of this business. But I mean, he's still my little brother and always will be. And so that gets under my skin more than, than, um, than death threats or, or people picking at me. And, uh, and he gets way more of those than I do. So that is a, a thing that, uh, that bugs me for sure. Yeah. I, it's something, I think it's unique that his audience, cause I think you guys share a lot of the audience, but it feels, it, it feels like the more mature side of that audience kind of, they're the ones that seek out and they find Isaac. They're like, what's Isaac? <laughs> because, yeah. because, it's more, you know, you're, you're a nerdy engineer doing nerdy engineer stuff. And that's not something that you can really make fun of somebody for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, generally, I you generally like it's a... my, generally it's my religious or political things that I say in a live stream. Uh, that's usually what brings on the, uh, the hate. Mm. Um, and again, I mean, in some ways that is the least, uh, like, again, I want constructive criticism that I can learn from. <clears throat> that is accurate. When people come at me and just say, everything about your worldview is completely wrong uh, because the Enlightenment. And it's like, well, hang on a second. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, and, and again, a lot of this is, is criticism that I've seen um, my parents deal with. And I've seen um, conservatives uh, over especially recent years get more and more and more of. This is becoming kind of more of the norm. And it uh, in some ways lessens the sting a bit, but it's also scary because I think that it opens the door for more and more and more uh, vitriolic uh, attack. So the accusations of uh, you standing in the way of progress, like that's more extreme than probably what your parents got. That's probably more extreme than what I heard when I was, a, a you know, when I was living in New Zealand. I was put in the very difficult position of having to defend George Bush. I wasn't exactly a George Bush fan, mm. but the accusations against George Bush were the dumb ones. And so I had to stand up and be like, well, you know, he's not actually the stupidest president America has ever had. Technically, that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, but, but we've seen you know, the, the rhetoric of, of criticism on the internet and even in mainstream media just get ratcheted up higher and higher and higher. And I think that that does have really uh, scary connotations for our kids. And that's one of the reasons that uh, I do want to 
try to diffuse things and not be too carried away by um, an emotional response to what's happening now. I do want to diffuse it, but at the same time, I also know that it could be a lot worse and it's possible we'll see a lot, a lot worse. Um, I, I know people who are dealing with much more difficult things in, uh, in other parts of the world right now. And um, yeah, I want to try to have a kind of a measured or philosophical approach to this. But as, as meaningless and pointless as a lot of these insults are, they, they do not bode well for kind of the next 20 years. That's, that's the thing that's concerning to me. The people that yell at me on YouTube, I don't actually think they're coming to my house. Yeah. But the kind of things that are getting said, um, that makes it okay for the next generation to come to my kids' houses maybe. Mm. That's, that's more my concern. Yeah. Mm. I, I don't understand that there, there's this wide and maybe it's growing, maybe it's not, but at least in my you know narrow perception, which I will admit before anyone else could be very wrong, people are getting a lot more negative and a lot more vitriolic these days than they used to be. And um, I'm seeing it on other people's social media and I'm seeing it on our social media. Um, for, for example, the other day, you know, after posting the handgun guide and I realized that you guys have it a thousand times worse than we do. There's people coming like, oh, you know, you dumb, you know, insert slur here. You only know this kind of this like one grip, you noob. It's like, how do you get so <laughs> mad yeah. over someone just like posting advice? It, Genuinely well, just like posting free advice. Yeah. Like, out of their well, own especially pocket. you were very, uh, I mean, you didn't like, this is the only way you can hold your pistol. Like that was yeah, not what like, you posted. You posted, here's like, three ways, uh, three ways yeah. that you can hold your pistol. One that is good, and two that are obviously terrible, and everybody knows. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's like it, it, it's basic. If you want to get a better grip than that, the, by by all fucking means, do it. And the guy's like, "Stay in your lane, Seaburn boy." I'm like, "What, are, dude? Are you okay?" Yeah, it, like I I genuinely want to ask, are you are you all right? Is everything okay at home? <laughs> I, yeah. Like the the people who get that mad over, for example, you or Lucas or anyone else giving free advice and again i get the i agree with you on the constructive criticism thing people can learn from that that's in the word it's constructive but just insults over nothing it's like are you all right who who shit in your breakfast this morning like are, are things it's, okay it's with the definitely, wife and yeah and that's another reason that some of this level of of um discourse is is discouraging to me is yeah i feel really bad for a lot of these folks um i, I do worry about them yeah like, and I, I don't mean that you know as as a backhanded insult like, yeah. no truly no, and honestly there's a lot yeah. of insecurities within the gun industry and we see people portraying their insecurities in ways of insults whenever somebody posts something that might not be how they do something it's very, it, it's very this way or no way. And in reality, there's a million different ways to do a million different things, but there is this weird, I think, it, I, I think, and I hope it's slowly starting to be phased out, but there's this idea that you have to do it this one way or you're wrong. You have to shoot mm -hmm. this one way or you're wrong. If you don't do this drill and you don't do it this way, you're wrong. If you don't hold your weapon this way, you're wrong. If you don't do a mag change this way, you're wrong. Yeah. I, I think that's slowly being phased out. And I think there are a lot of different people to credit for that. But 
for a while it wasn't it, it was at full blast i feel and mm-hmm. i think we're still kind of getting the echoes of it but hopefully yeah. maybe i'm just optimistic it's slowly starting to turn more into i want to know multiple ways to do something that yeah. way if i'm in a situation where i can't do it this one way i know how to do it at least a little bit this way yeah i i remember god i don't know why my brain just uh Kenda has this really fucking stupid, stupid, stupid licensing system in order for you to get a gun. And I remember doing the safety course a long time ago, which you have to do. It's just taught by a bunch of, you know, old hunting boomers in, I I don't know, some community center or something. And I remember, you know, we we all have to pick up the gun and hold it a certain way. Just, you know, in, in this case, it was just a 12 gauge shotgun, like a friggin' Mossberg 500 or something with a 30-inch bird hunting barrel. So, you know, I, I, I picked it up and held it just to demonstrate, you know, three-quarters of the class are leaning backwards or, you know, <laughs> doing any any of that. And, God, this is years ago. And I, I remember this, you know, over 10 years later because it's bothered me so much. And I pick it up and I hold it the way that I, you know, know how to hold a shotgun, which is basically the same way I do it now which is you lean into it a little bit, you know, meteor shoulder, all, all that fucking bullshit. Fuck it. That, like Meg pull out of the dynamic shotgun C clamp. <laughs> I, I don't fucking know all, all, all of that. Like, and the instructor looks at me and he's like, no, you can't do that. Fix yourself. If you hold it like that, <laughs> the recoil is going to knock you over. And like, I I had to like stand up straight and like hold it against the side and like stand sideways against my target just to Mm -hmm. to pass that course. And I I feel like, I don't know, that that's kind of an institutionalized version of this. It's like, I learned this one way and no other way will work. Yeah. But mostly I just wanted to bitch about the Canadian firearms program. Go on. (laughs) Well, so we have similar things. I did a hunter safety course when I was probably 13. It was similar. It wasn't necessary for licensing per se, except I think when you're under 18, this is when we lived in. Um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty similar system, except it's not directly tied to owning a firearm. It's you know getting a hunting license when you're underage or stuff like that. Now, I will say that um, I think that is going away partly. And I think you guys have it easy because you both were in the military. So you know everything about combat and fighting and guns yes absolutely uh, everything (laughs) only no one can uh, attack you for that yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) no one will say anything to you nobody Um, well one one thing that is really interesting and i do think it is getting better but i think that part of it is because the gun industry um and and gun people have been so demonized uh and embattled for so long that that uh all of us have our have our shields up. We we all have our armor on. We're all kind of holding people at arm's length a little bit. And there's a there's a crustiness and and a grumpiness to the industry, which is, um, which is unpleasant. But I also, I get it. Um, and it, it is yes, there are jerks in all industries for sure. I don't actually feel like the firearm industry has a higher ratio of jerks than the medical industry or the military uh, industrial complex that I've worked in briefly as a contractor or the financial industry. Uh, in fact, compared to a lot of those industries, um, Hollywood. <laughs> uh, in many ways, the firearm industry is a breath of fresh air. Um, but getting back to homeschooling, there's a thing that 
in the early days of homeschooling, when there was still a stigma attached to it, homeschoolers, uh, the stereotype is, of course, that homeschool kids were nerdy and unsocialized, which isn't actually usually that accurate, but a, a stereotype, or, or rather something that didn't get stereotyped, but, but I think was largely true, is homeschool families were often kind of uh, a little bit isolationist, a little bit standoffish, a little bit crusty, a little bit, you know, had their had their dukes up a little bit too much. Not exactly a chip on their shoulder per se, but a little bit of a uh, little bit of just standoffishness. And mm-hmm. and I see that in the gun industry a little bit because um, I think that our, our industry is more. I mean, there's just a lot of restrictions. Um, a huge percentage of the sitting politicians in the country are trying to literally destroy our industry and have been doing so for as long as any of us can remember. Um, so I, I feel like as, as frustrating as that is and unpleasant as that is, I really do get it. And I think we come by it relatively honestly. And uh, so I think it would be really good for us to get along better for sure. Um, but anyway, that's just a random a random thought. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, it's difficult. One one of the other things that homeschoolers did uh, pretty well in the early days was, like our our parents uh, in particular, had to figure stuff out. There wasn't a whole bunch of turnkey curriculum that you could just buy off of Amazon. It was very hard to actually find homeschooling curriculum. It was kind of this new thing. There wasn't really the internet. So you'd go to the library and you'd hear about maybe like the librarian would tell you about another homeschooling family that had come in earlier. There were physical newsletters that you should subscribe to if you figured out who to talk to. Like it was, it was kind of weird, Wild West sort of thing where you very much felt like you were on your own. And if it worked and it was succeeding, then you you kind of developed this very uh, independent way of doing things. Like, well, I've you know pulled out of the school system. I can do whatever. Do I, uh, you know, and brought that kind of attitude to a lot of different things. And that's another thing that I think a lot of gun folks have done is a lot of the people who started these gun companies are people who used to have a corporate job that they hated mm. and they left so they could do their own thing and they could pursue their passion. And one of the things that I feel like we're really blessed with at T-Rex is uh, all of us that have come together to be part of this company have brought with us a whole bunch of skill sets and we get along relatively well. If you just want to be a machinist and you want to start a company and you you hate uh, you hate HR and you hate accounting because your last corporate job, they were just a pain all the time. And so you really don't want to do that with your own company. Well, your, your company is going to have trouble filling orders and growing. And, you know, some of the complaints that we have about various gun companies, uh, <laughs> I think uh, I think kind of stem from some of that as well. So again, I'm very sympathetic to a lot of these issues as much as they do bug me. Mm. Um, yeah. So I, I, you, you are one of the easiest guests that we've had because you bring up all these great transition moments for me. So I don't have to like, think of them. You talked about the beginning, um, of T-Rex arms a little bit and how kind of everybody had these past experiences coming together. Walk me through what's going on when Lucas decides that he's going to start a holster company and it's becoming something a little <laughs> bit bigger. What's going through the mind of the bigger brother? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. To be honest, I missed part of the beginning of, of T-Rex starting. So uh, one of the things that is sort of interesting, before T-Rex started, Lucas, myself, um, and the two Davids, 
Uh, we're all part of the Hickman County Volunteer Fire uh, or technically Rescue Squad. So the the four the four T Rex people, the four T Rex, we're all doing um, this volunteer fire department thing together. And Lucas was also doing some medical training, just some some other kind of first responder stuff. And I was doing video stuff. David had recently gotten married. Like we were fairly distracted with different things. And so Lucas was very focused on this, um, fire department stuff, fire training, first responder training, medical training, et cetera. And that was when he started making holsters. Um, and actually, technically, he's, his first holster he made with a piece of Kydex that I bought and never did anything with. So I feel like I should get some credit for something. But uh, <laughs> it was a piece of Kydex that I had bought, done nothing with. It was lying around. Anyhow. Um, now, this was uh, about this time. My wife is from uh, Colorado. So as Lucas is doing a lot of this really early beginning of T-Rex stuff, I'm actually living in Colorado. And so I kind of missed the beginning of the company. And as it's growing and it's developing and I'm keeping tabs on it, I am, uh, I think I am uh, very, uh, yeah, no, I feel like I am very uh, supportive and helpful to Lucas, but I'm also not imagining that it becomes a very large successful business that I'm going to work for one day. And uh, so I'm watching his shooting videos. I'm actually very impressed with how quickly he's getting good at shooting because while we have all, you know, enjoyed guns, appreciated guns, the level of training has always been, you know, relatively low. Certainly nothing like what Lucas was doing. Lucas is at this stage when I'm in Colorado and he's been making uh, the first few hundred plastic holsters, he's gone from someone who has shot a gun several times enjoys plinking with a 22 rifle and you know is kind of that level of gun person to someone who is doing quite well in competition <laughs> and so i'm kind of seeing this in time lapse because i'm in colorado for a while i come back i see what's going on so i see this in a pretty accelerated kind of way and it's very impressive but i'm not really involved in the holster company very much i would come along and i would help out during black friday making holsters in the pre-CNC days and uh, watching it grow and uh, talking. At this point, it is Lucas, David, and David who are the three partners of the company. And I'm watching them. I'm trying to remember exactly how long it was a one-man band. For a long time, it was just Lucas. And then he had a couple folks from, uh, from church helping out with things here or there. And then it became a partnership. They began hiring people. And uh, it was just really, really cool to see several things. It was cool to see everybody working on a project together. It was cool to see Lucas really coming into his own, both as a shooter, but also as a, well, as a lot of things, craftsman, designer. I wasn't really thinking businessman at that point because it was still small enough. It was still just a handful of people working in a garage. I wasn't really seeing Lucas as a businessman exactly. Uh, I kind of, I kind of began to see him that way and think of him that way a little bit later on. But as as a marketer, yeah, it was really fun to see all of these things come, sort of come together out of Lucas and all of these, all of these strengths that he had as a kid. That it was like, I have no idea how that's ever going to be useful. Like I don't know. <laughs> like one of the things that that Lucas was really good at as a kid was he was really good at archery, uh, like snap shooting from the hip archery. And it was like, well, that's kind of a weird. Uh, like freakishly good hand-eye coordination thing that I don't really know how that comes into play later. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really neat, you know, as the company is growing and seeing all of these um, gifts and talents 
in, in my brothers that I haven't really seen because we haven't really done anything. This type of business or this type of craftsmanship coming together is really super fun. Uh, and I'm still at this point, I'm recently married and no longer part of the fire department because I've been in Colorado for too long and I've gone inactive and various, uh, various projects. And I'm still working as the freelance, uh, the freelance video guy. That's still kind of my main, my main pursuit at this point. And I forget exactly, uh, I forget exactly the conversation. I've always been fascinated by 3D printers and CNC machines and manufacturing, but haven't really done any of it. And this is a conversation that usually my brother David and I have had about wanting to have more tools, more capability to do certain things. And about the time that James is born, um, that's Heidi and I's first child, James is born. And that's about the time when David comes to me and is like, hey, our volume is here. We really probably need a CNC machine at this point. Nobody has time to learn how to do it. It seems like the sort of thing that you could learn how to do. What do you think? And that was when I started researching CNC machines, CNC routers. And I knew that I had a little bit of a head start because what I'd been doing most uh, recently in video production was uh, animation, uh, 3D animation mostly. And so building three-dimensional models of things, um, I, I knew I had a head start in that in that area, I knew that that was part of the CNC process. So that was when I joined the company and we bought a used CNC machine uh, from a, a crusty old sign maker down in New Orleans and got it wired up in uh, our unheated <laughs> our unheated shop that we were working in, which is like a little garage building. And uh, I spent that winter just tinkering with this machine and trying to figure out <laughs> what it was and how it worked and how we were going to make holsters on it. So, uh, yeah, it was a really interesting, uh, yeah, really fascinating. And ever since then, it's just been more, more, more problems to solve, just different problems, uh, more opportunities to learn new stuff. So, that, yeah. That's so friggin' cool. Have you tried your resin printer yet? Yes, we printed a bunch of stuff with resin. And uh, it's, it's not as cool as, I mean, it's extremely cool. It's not as sturdy as I had hoped. Um, uh, what kind of resin are you using? We're using the, I can't remember now. Like eSun e e washable or uh, the PLA? We're using eSun BLU, the blue stuff. I think it's supposed to be a little bit sturdier. Oh, uh, Soraya? Uh, Soraya Tech? Sor Soraya Blue, yes. Oh, Soraya yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I really, really recommend the uh, the eSun Hard and Tough. It's, uh, okay. it's a lot stronger. It's way less brittle. I can, uh, yeah, if you want to write that down. Cool. You're doing. Um, yeah, Esun e hard and tough. I I have a hard time breaking it, like with a hammer, with with whatever. Cool. That being said, it's a lot more flexible than Soraya, okay. which is brittle. Um, There's a couple to, of products that I can't yeah. talk about right now that would certainly benefit from a sturdier prototype, even if it were flexible. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, there you go. Uh, highly recommend <laughs> the Esun. Um, we've tried oh, Liquid. No worries. Uh, Liquid Create is what we're using in the shop now. Uh, we're we're printing a bunch of like night vision stuff with it, nice. and it, it's good. But it it falls it, it's it's on paper much stronger than the E Sun, but it is more temp it's more temperature resistant, but also more brittle. I'd recommend the E Sun stuff first. It's also way cheaper. Okay, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, we won't get into this right now. This is a this is <laughs> oh, a well. No, so this is fascinating to me. So I'm a geek and a nerd. So this technical yeah. thing is very interesting. That's part of the reason that I jumped at you know, the opportunity 
uh, I didn't think of myself as an engineer. I didn't think of myself as a, a manufacturing or business person, but the opportunity to tinker with CNC machines was extremely cool. And uh, so the opportunity to come along and do stuff with, with T-Rex uh, automation front was really neat. But since then, I really, now that I've gotten my hands dirty, like I have, I have an appreciation for some of this new manufacturing technology beyond just, you know, the cool tinkering factor, like what it can actually do and what it actually means for decentralized manufacturing um, economically and culturally, I think is super cool. So yeah, I love it. Yeah. So, so you're in Colorado, um, kind of going back and forth with with your with your brother, um, who's, who's who's starting out this uh, holster company. You're seeing them grow. Um, wh- what are you doing in Colorado? Like, what did you have to leave in order to come and start working for T-Rex? <laughs> oh, so I was really basically I was just in Colorado to hang out with uh, my wife's family and get to know her better. And uh, this is actually kind of dumb. So the first part of our relationship was a long distance relationship. And then like halfway through, I realized, wait a minute, why am I doing this? My work is all on a laptop. Why am I not just in Colorado right now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it took me a while to uh, figure that out. So my, my plan was always to come back to, to Tennessee and live near my family. Uh, as much as I love my wife's family, as, um, as much as I really appreciate uh you know, how beautiful Colorado is. Uh, the, the plan was always to come back to Tennessee. Uh, I just thought that I was going to continue to be doing Tennessee community stuff, not necessarily holster stuff. I wasn't really sure what that looked like. Um, I, I guess I just assumed that it was going to continue to be uh, commercial video, uh, freelance video type things, which when you're living with your parents, it's relatively easy to make uh, make that make that work. But, uh, once you, once you're married and you have kids, it's like, you have to be a pretty, pretty good salesman to make your, your, uh, your freelance video empire, something that you can grow. I, I, I was long distance with my wife in Colorado. She was from Colorado too. And I was long distance with her for a while. And it, it's funny because you, you, go, you guys are in Tennessee. Before I even knew who T-Rex Arms was, um, before I knew anything about that, I drove through Tennessee. Tennessee is gorgeous. It reminds me so much of home, mm. except it's way more humid, and I hate the humidity. But I, I, I'm from upstate New York, and I haven't been home in years mm-hmm. at this point. Um, I was I was a NCOIC at Cadet Summer Training um, in Kentucky. But we would convince the brand new LTs that were allowed to have vehicles we weren't to drive us um, through Tennessee <laughs> to go to Nashville. And I remember driving through and I'm like, farmland, lots of green. Like this is just like home. And I felt like I was at home for a little bit. It was so gorgeous. Um, no, that, but that's cool. You, you traveled out to Colorado to hang out with your wife, get to know your wife's family. I'm, I'm essentially doing that now five years into my marriage. Uh, we finally were able to get yeah. out in Colorado, but, and then that's, that's great. And you saw your little brother doing stuff. I think we, we talked a little bit off, off there. I was trying to picture my little brothers or sisters starting a company and I would be so supportive, but because I've seen them grow up <laughs> and I've seen like, cause you know, we're all kids. We all do dumb stuff, but when you're the oldest, you don't get to see like yourself doing dumb stuff. And oh, you know, of course not. You're, you're infallible. Yeah. You, you're, you're, you're <laughs> like the alpha. You're, you're at top of the food chain. And I, I just look at my little brothers and sisters. My little brothers are still in high school. So maybe not, wait, them, wait. but my little sister 
and I just try and picture and I'm like, man, if you start, you know, man, my sister, <laughs> she, she's very successful. She is the, um, uh, she's might be on the U S women's national soccer team, um, coming up for the next, uh, world cup and, uh, Olympics. But besides that, I try and picture her starting like a company and even her doing greater things like in sports than I ever did. I look at her and I'm, I just see my little sister eating sand, you know, just doing, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it, it must be, I mean, I'm sure like now it's, it's normal, but at first seeing your, you know, a little, your little sibling do this great thing and getting really, really, really good at something. Mm-hmm. It's, it's strange. Cause I see with my sister, I was a goalkeeper. She's a goalkeeper. I played a little bit over in a really low division in Italy and she's about to go be the, like, you know, playing on the national team for the women, like way more successful than I ever was with soccer. And I still look at her and I'm like, yeah, it's my little sister. You know, she ate sand. <laughs> she used to make turkey cheese and ketchup sandwiches. Like I know all these weird quirks about her and I can only picture like starting a business that is such in the public light as the older brother. It's gotta be you know, fascinating. It is very, well, the good news is I had, I mean, I've had practice doing that because all of my younger siblings have really excelled in certain areas that are just utterly beyond my abilities, sometimes beyond my comprehension. Like my brother Ben is an amazing composer. Um, Everyone was somewhat musical compared to me, but Ben was an amazing composer. Um, And so I've, I've had some practice kind of learning to do this. My brother David is incredible. My sisters are incredible. Noah is the programmer for T-Rex Arms. He's written almost all of the code that makes the whole website and e-commerce and the backend inventory management system. Like All of that is custom code that Noah has either done himself or now we actually have um, a software development team that he is running. So it's not just him. But uh, yeah, I have watched um, my siblings take things that I had a passing interest in here or there. And I was like, Oh, I'm pretty good at this and just take it utterly beyond (laughs) (laughs) what my capabilities were. Um, So by the time Lucas was doing that, I had eaten a fair amount of humble pie and learned how to wrap my brain around that a bit. (laughs) Does everybody like all your siblings work now under T-Rex arms? No, at this point. uh, So it's, the, the girls uh, are doing their own projects. And uh, my brother, Ben, he actually wrote a bunch of the music for the early T-Rex Arms videos, but he is too what? successful and uh, and too busy to do anything like that now. He's doing all kinds of uh, stuff with the studio. Um, so, yeah, uh, he's uh, – well, actually, no, he used to bend holsters too uh, occasionally. So uh, he was a very good holster bender when he wasn't uh, busy <laughs> writing music. Um, composing music for films or video games. Um, but uh, yeah, you can still hear a lot of his music in T-Rex videos, but he's no longer writing custom bespoke music for us because uh, <laughs> we can't afford him. <laughs> <laughs> but that's still interesting though, because you work so closely with your family. And I mean, not all of them, as you said, um, but all your siblings and you know, being the oldest and watching you know, because you're you're doing the nerdy engineer stuff where you get all the constructive criticism because nobody's going to, you know, not everybody has an opinion <laughs> about the engineer stuff, you know, and the people yeah. that do are usually the ones that are constructive about it. Uh, 
that that dynamic amongst you know because you it's not just your family doing it. you have all these other people now um, yeah there's a lot of folks at the shop now it's um that's in some ways that's been a harder adjustment than uh, working with family because when we were young and we would help dad with his projects we were all working together so working together is fairly normal and then when i worked on other people's projects i was working on teams so working with non-family is totally normal um but uh yeah now we have this family project that uh employs a bunch of people that's that's kind of interesting that's kind of weird Hmm. um now fortunately we've grown over uh, a few years so there's been a little bit of time to adjust but yeah it's um i've worked on I've worked on the outsides of big companies, but not inside so that I have a really good understanding of how you structure a big company. And T-Rex is not a big company, but T-Rex is as big a company as I've ever understood. You're uh, so we're now there. at the limits of my understanding of how big a company can be. <laughs> getting, getting into that as well, the cohesiveness seems to be like everybody always seems to be on the same page. Everything seems coordinated, well thought out, and planned. And you you heard me you heard me talk about this before um, on the other podcast. One of the most interesting things to me is just how coordinated everybody at the company is. When when something when something happens, any anything you know, uh, be it that the dude's video or maybe just. Uh, something with the mod was it was a mod light or surefire i don't i don't even remember i don't i try not to keep up with it but it seems like whenever pretend like there's a hypothetical company yeah yeah yeah. any (laughs) hypothetical company it seems like whenever something happens be it good or bad everybody is on the same page and i'm super curious about how that works if you can talk about that online if not no big deal yeah well, I won't talk about any specifics, um, but I don't think I have to talk about specifics because the, sh- the short answer is we're not on the same page all the time. There's plenty of issues where we go back and forth on what's the best way to do this or what's the best way to do that or this thing happened, which is very problematic. Like One thing that we have talked about a bit more recently is we had a supplier making us a product. It was supposed to be made in Mexico. Right. Or No, it was supposed to be made in the United States supposed to be very compliant, had all the certificates. We started finding made in Mexico tags. There was wild, not exactly disagreement. There was wild diversity of opinions on what we should do with that whole situation and how to handle the situation relating to this, relating to that. But we ended up on the same page. So one of the things that I think is really, uh, really helpful is um, we always want to end up on the same page. So one of the things that we we I believe have done a pretty good job is of is um, we wait till we're on the same page to make a decision or to talk about stuff publicly so that we're not stepping on each other's toes. That uh, doesn't always work out. There's plenty of times when you know this ball gets dropped or that ball gets dropped, but we really want to uh, we really want to all be together on things. We're trying to accomplish the same goals, which which helps. And so when a thing happens, like um, like we're developing the new sidecar, we run into a quality control issue. Well, we all want to fix it. We all have different ideas of how to fix it. Mm-hmm. We, we work that out amongst ourselves, knowing that we're trying to accomplish the same goal. And then once we have a solution, that's when um, 
when we're actually on the same page, we're actually together, that's when we actually move forwards. Now, what's, what's tricky is if you're in a situation where something is so pressing, so urgent that you got to move forward before there's been a conversation, at that point, you have to just kind of trust the guy who, uh, who is running that play and, and go along with it. But generally speaking, um, we've tried to not let the tyranny of the urgent drive us to make decisions before we have talked about them. And I think that has helped a lot. Um, yeah. So there's that discourse and that discourse, you know, like we talked about earlier, having all these different experiences and different minds come together, um, with different, you know, uh, perspectives can be very beneficial. Um, I said it seems like everybody's on the same page because that is the image that is put out. But obviously, you know, in any business or in any friendship or in any relationship, even there's always going to be things that happen that just happens kind of quietly or that yeah. isn't what's being, you know, publicly made available for folks. Um, I do want to point out that one thing, well, you said, you know, you, you might not always agree or come to the same conclusion, it, it still seems like everybody is like, Hey, you know what? Maybe I didn't get my way this time, but we're a company, we're a team, we're moving forward and we're going to support it. And that's something that I don't see happening too often. That is one thing that I've noticed with T-Rex arms. It seems you guys are always on the same page and that is the public image that's put out. And mm -hmm. I in no way thought behind the scenes, everybody is always on the same page together, but it, it is always interesting to see anything happens. And it seems like everybody is kind of moving in the same direction. Yeah. All right. Two, one. I don't remember what we were talking about before. Um, I'm sorry. I keep we, had to, we had to stop because we were saying tremendously uh, unpopular things about the United States military. Yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> I so have. None of, that, none, of that need, general. none of that needs to be recorded. But- uh, I, I will say we we just we talked backwards into history and then we had come back forwards in history up till uh, up till World War II. I, I will say um, you were talking about a phenomenal experience that I am that that's incredible. I had a similar one. This is one of the the highlights of my life. I worked on a documentary about Iwo Jima. I actually got to go to Iwo Jima with a bunch of World War II vets who fought there. Holy, that was crap. incredible, and. Uh, that's, I mean, it's, first of all, it's just an insanely rare opportunity, but also just to, just to experience it with those guys. A lot of them were going back for the very first time since that battle. A lot of them were taking their kids and their grandkids with them. And I was uh, running a camera and documenting this, but I had a lot of opportunities to, to talk to these guys. And yeah, no, that was incredibly, uh, incredibly special. And, um, yeah, so that's um, that's something that is is uh, <laughs> it, it it comes back. I, I remember it and think about um, those guys, especially especially now at this point. Um, I grew up around a lot of World War II vets, and I have introduced my kids to a couple, but by the time my kids are old enough to remember, there really won't really won't be any anymore. Yeah, um, which is really really sobering. There, yeah. the the Vietnam vets that um that were my dad's age those those are the those are the old timey vets that they're going to grow up with um which is kind of an interesting interesting thing because we were we were when we weren't recording we were we were talking very fondly about the world war ii generation mm -hmm. uh, and specifically the u.s military of that era and um, i really appreciate having gotten to spend time with guys who experienced that 
um, the good and the bad, and 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 I think thought very clearly about it. I I, I really appreciate those um, those opportunities that I had to spend time with those men. They they have such a great outlook on life. Surprisingly, for all the horrible things that they might have witnessed. I mean, my grandfather witnessed his brother-in-law, his future brother-in-law before he married um, you know, my grandmother. He he witnessed him burning alive. Like uh, it was it was an awful awful experience, but he'll talk about it now like I one of the things I asked my grandparents to do. My grandmother passed away when I was a little bit younger, but what I asked her to do and what I asked my grandfather to do, my um my grandmother loved to cook, so I asked her to write a cookbook for me and she did i still have it but i also asked my grandfather i'm like hey you always talk about the war if you could write down like a timeline of all your experiences whatever you're comfortable with doing like i would love to have that and every time i see him i mean he gave me a ton of papers but every time i see him he's like oh i remembered this one time where whatever you know was happening and he talks so fondly about awful things that happen not fondly but he talks so nonchalantly mm-hmm. about witnessing all these terrible, awful things, but he has such a unique perspective with it where he's like, man, we were fighting the Nazis and, you know, the Nazis were doing this stuff, but I went back and I visited Germany and they're, they're, they're good people. They're good people over there. There were good people then. It was just a bad time in history. And it's, it's always interesting mm-hmm. to hear their perspective. And I, I found myself in the fortunate situation to not just get my grandfather's perspective, but like we were talking about a little off air when I did the jump into Normandy with them and that whole event, like just getting to talk and experience, you know, they say like respect your elders. I love talking. <laughs> I love talking with those, uh, those old time folks, because like you said, our, our kids aren't going to be able to experience that. Our kids will experience mm-hmm. the Vietnam vets and, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a, such a vastly different era of military and people. Uh, yeah. Yeah, those those guys got a a different kind of really rough, uh, really rough experience. Um, I think, I, and and that is one of the fascinating things that you know the way that 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 vets who fought, you know, these horrifically brutal battles, um, Iwo Jima is just mind-bogglingly awful. Like it's it's one of the best examples of pure warfare that I can think of. No cover, no room to maneuver. Like it's just fighting. There's no room for tricks. There's barely room for tactics. It is just fighting. And, and yet with modern equipment, modern weapons, uh, and all that that implies, but those guys, um, you know, their, their attitude towards the Japanese, uh, men that they had been fighting their attitude toward the Japanese men that were on, on the Island that were part of the, you know, delegation. Cause it is an active military base, Iwo Jima radar base. One of the things that I think is really interesting is if you can, if you have a good grasp on reality, you have a good mission, you have uh, a good definition of evil, you can call out evil very clearly, very plainly, you can fight it, and then you can know what isn't evil and you can, you can be on really good terms with the people who are there, the people who are in Germany, the people who are in Japan during occupation. And I think that's one of the huge things that we're missing right now. Um, so we don't really, we can't really define evil very well. And so we have to, uh, you know, we have to make an opposing political person be evil. You know, we have to make a certain group be evil. Um, and it's just, it's them who are evil, just incarnating themselves. And 
then you have to be bitter and you hate, have to hate those people forever. <laughs> because it, that's your new definition. Right. And, and it's funny how throughout history, the enemies have changed. I feel like back then they were very well defined and very obvious. They didn't mm-hmm. take any, you know, uh, manipulation. They didn't take any fal- falsification of whatever. It was the Nazis are killing people. They are bad people. Like what they're doing is wrong. It was very clear, very defined, at least for the people on our side of the world. You know, in Germany, I'm sure it was very different. I, I thought, yeah. uh, like, uh, not not to play devil's advocate here because it's kind of the worst play, thing to play devil's advocate for. <laughs> Genuinely, the worst <laughs> fucking thing. I thought they found out about the Holocaust afterwards. I, they're, they're like there were allegations, but uh, we didn't really find out about it until we, you know, found the camps. For for a lot of folks, for sure, yeah, that was something. They there were various, oh maybe you know various atrocities, and obviously, we're allies with England, and London is being bombed. We're seeing, we're seeing, uh, you know, Paris being occupied. Like, I think that for a lot of people, that's just like, oh, this is just war. Uh, This is like kind of normal conventional warfare. Our allies are under attack. It's time for us to go over there and do normal conventional warfare stuff to get rid of this. You know, this is just another one of the times when Germany wants to take over the world. So we just got to go deal with that the way that we normally do. Oh, it's uh, happening again. Yeah. Uh, there's the, have you seen, uh, there's a Norm MacDonald bit where he's like, Germany decided to go to war and for their enemy, they chose the world. <laughs> it had never been tried before. Uh, you'd think that'd be over in a few minutes. It was actually close. <laughs> And 30 years later, they did it again. Yep. So, um, but it is, it is really interesting. A lot of the guys that I talked to who, who were um, in the European theater talked about the fact that, yes, we were fighting, we were fighting the Nazis. But then once we were actually in Germany, the German people were the ones who, uh, it, it felt the most like home. Like Holland and Germany felt the most like home. France was weird. Like, but, but once you got to Germany, the people were nice. They were polite. It, it actually felt more like, like home, it felt more like America than um, than a lot of the European countries that they'd been stationed in, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, there's there's a very weird dynamic. I think it I think it, it happens more often than not. Maybe not in Vietnam because it seems like everybody in Vietnam was kind of against what was going on. But at least when I was in <laughs> Afghanistan, <laughs> like statement of the year. <laughs> but you know, even in Afghanistan, depending on where we were and what we were doing, like when we drove through Kabul, it's probably one of the most terrifying things that I've ever done because you have you're in a very clear and obvious place that people do not want you. The locals did not want us there. Even little kids would come out and throw rocks at us, and you know, it, it was very obvious they didn't like us there. But then we would go to some smaller villages. And we wouldn't be going to do anything. We wouldn't go with our big, loud trucks. We would just kind of, you know, just kind of pass through. They were very kind, very hospitable, very friendly. And the the people and the culture of Afghanistan, I think, a lot. I mean, it's very unique and, and, and great in some ways. But they have the unfortunate, you know, downside of they're plagued with this this war. And it's not just the Taliban or Al Qaeda of the past. It's now ISIS K too. There's Mm -hmm. all these different groups of people that are willing to do terrible things to each other to grab power. And there's just people living in in the middle of it and they are hospital, nice people. Um, It's strange. It's really strange. It's, 
Afghanistan for a long time has basically been the punching bag of the world. It's really upsetting to see and even think about, but Mm, yeah. yeah. And yet it's also, you know, very few people make it out of Afghanistan. They go there to, they go there to take this, this territory and it is the graveyard of empires. Mm. Um, It's not something that, uh, it's not as easy as it looks. What's the, what's the saying? I forget when this was, it was, uh, who said this, but it was some Afghan leader in Alexander the Great's time, I believe, who said, you may defeat us, but you will never defeat our poverty. <laughs> like you, you come in here, yeah. <laughs> like you'll regret it. You, you can, you can kill us, but uh, we'll endure and you won't. What were you doing in New Zealand? <laughs> oh, so this is an excellent question that sounded completely normal and not as if an earlier bit about a different country got cut out for security <laughs> reasons. Um, so my, uh, my dad really wanted us kids to spend some time outside of the United States, just as a learning experience. So we moved to New Zealand when I had just turned 18, and we were there for uh, six, six and a half years, something like that. And uh, yeah, it was really phenomenal. I think that was a tremendous, um, I think that was a tremendous experience for all of us, learning experience, getting to see outside of uh, the culture that we've been growing up we'd been growing up in. Now, that being said, New Zealand is not like a wildly different culture. It is a it is a very comfortable western culture. There isn't even a language barrier. But uh yeah, we were down there doing um just kind of the the regular stuff that we had been doing, media stuff. I worked for some television stations, worked on some uh worked on some television shows, worked on a couple of movies down there. Um it was, yeah, it was a phenomenal experience, I think, for all of us kids to spend time out of the United States. And it's something that I really want for my own kids. But looking at the state of the world and lockdowns and COVID stuff, it's just like, I don't actually know how to do that. Mm. Actually, it's hard to practically even think through, but they're still very young. I have time for uh, the world to sort itself out, which I'm sure it will do in just like no time. They'll just figure it out, I'm sure. I would love to do that for my kids too, because... While I wasn't necessarily, you know, a younger kid, you know, I, uh, my first, uh, deployment, I put that in air quotes, um, was to Ukraine during the civil war in 2014, 2015. And I mean, before, um, so getting to experience a different culture in the middle of that was something so unique. I don't know if I'd bring my kids to a country that's in the middle of a civil war, but I would love for my kids to get that perspective of living outside of the United States because mm-hmm. it is it, it, looking back on my years that I spent in Europe, it was some of the most valuable experiences I was able to get. Um, I, I was able to learn different countries' perspectives, different cultures, different beliefs, and different different foods. Uh, everything was different in every different country. And it was <laughs> it was a great, great experience because you see you see how different people deal with different problems. And you're able to take some things that they do and apply that to yourself. Or maybe you're able to see how poorly certain things are going. And I, I was always a curious type. I'm like, why are things going this poorly here? And then I look into it mm-hmm. and I'm like, well, these are definitely some telltale signs that something's going to go poorly because there was a re- real life example of this thing going poorly. And it, it allows me to have this perspective where I can now come home 
and I can look at everything around and I can see signs of things. And, you know, I, I see certain things happening and I'm like, I've seen this before. I've seen this before in the, you know, be it, you know, the Baltic States, or maybe I saw it in uh, an already, you know, like a country like Germany or Italy, you know, in modern day, um, mm-hmm. or maybe Afghanistan. And having that perspective is so unique. And I would love to give my daughter and any, any future kids that experience. But like you said, I don't, I don't know in the state of the world, if that's something that I want to do right now. How do you yeah. mean? Well, oh, he's not allowed in because, uh, you know, <laughs> everything's. Oh, yeah. yeah Europe okay. is closed. Go home. Yeah. Disregard. Disregard. We're, we're all. De- yeah, I don't want to use the word deplorable because that implies we vote for uh, for Trump. Uh, we're, we're all. Uh, fuck. I, I, I'm missing words. I'm missing words. <laughs> yep. We're, Undesirable. We're... Undesirables. Yep. That, that, well, that it's was... really interesting. Like, it's only a few years ago that everybody in Europe was like, "Open borders, open borders," and uh, for the last two years, it's like, "No, no, Europe is closed." <laughs> yes, it, I, I hear. I have some of my <laughs> friends that got caught in Europe, and they got stuck there for a little bit in the beginning of this whole thing, and they got stuck there, and they're like, "Yeah, we're kind of in limbo." And then some of them would be like, "I got in trouble for showing up late to my unit because I wasn't allowed to leave my old unit," and I'm like. What, what is, what's going on here? And I mean, they yeah. never ended up getting in serious trouble, but they started to, and then it was like, oh, well, you know, people weren't allowed to come and go. So I guess you're excused, but it's, mm, it's yeah. weird. It's weird. I, I don't see us going back to normal. I don't see it. I think the powers that be use this as a great power grab and why would they let go of it? Yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens because I agree with you. I don't think anybody currently in the position of power is going to say, oh, uh, this was a mistake. Let's quickly go back two years and get rid of all the policies that we put into place in the last two years. I don't see that at all. At the same time, though, all the policies that have been put in place in the last two years are not tenable. They cannot continue the way that they are. Oh, and Jesus, so yeah. something's got to something's going to happen. Yeah. And uh, as someone who has visited the Baltic nations at that particular time or Ukraine during the Civil War and various unpleasantness, like things, things break down relatively quickly uh, when once you actually hit a breaking point. And there are countries like the United States and uh, lots of countries in Europe. I think that it's really easy for us to forget yeah. uh, the possibility of this happening because we haven't seen this in our lifetimes. Our parents haven't seen this in their lifetimes. So obviously it's impossible. People, And I am afraid that um, not only is this possible, it's actually the norm throughout human history. And a lot of countries are hanging on to their, what's the right word for it? They're hanging on to the status quo with such a tight grip that the they're actually making the situation worse. Everything is getting more brittle and more fragile as opposed to sturdier because of how <laughs> tightly yeah. they're trying to hang on to stuff. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that that, that is happening. And, and I feel like the best thing that people could be doing is building some of the local, more resilient structures as, as backups. Like are, are the, the giant pillars and arches of your civilization toppling well, maybe build some more real quick as opposed to like, no, I'm just going to hang more stuff on this arch. I'm just going to hang 
hang, you know, throw some more weight way out onto this edge of the Colosseum. It's like, no, build some, start building some, some, some auxiliary structures here. Um, and then you'll be in a better position to help folks uh, if it happens sooner rather than later. I feel that speaks to a larger problem with society in general. Um, and I, I completely agree with you to, to preface, but um, unfortunately, and, and uh, as, as I see it, and again, like I absolutely think we should uh, focus on building those structures, but a lot of people, especially people who aren't used to having a community, people who don't have those, those ties, people, especially in the big cities and everything else, who, um, a lot of people want a band-aid solution. A lot of people want, you know, to take their Tylenol and the headache goes away as opposed to uh, adjust, really attacking the root cause of mm, what the yeah. problem is. And politicians will play to that. They'll absolutely play to that. And usually the solution is a band-aid solution, which actually makes it worse. You're putting band-aid after band-aid after band-aid on top of an infection. And as long as you ignore the infection, it's going to get worse and worse. And that's kind of how where we've got to as a society. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's an interesting thing because selfishly, you want to just, yeah, there's, <laughs> yes, there's a, there's a boil on the body politic that must be lanced. None of us yeah. want to deal with that. Maybe no one it will be it. a problem in the next generation's <laughs> yeah. time frame. Yeah, either that or we're going to be like, I don't know, eating cockroaches in, in the the Commonwealth. I don't know. They're like eating rad roaches. Sorry. <laughs> I, but I, we'll, I, we'll see what happens. I think the good thing, though, is that kind of kind of what you know you, you were saying, Isaac, is that you you build that local community. And even though, you know, the whole country might be going, you know, in the wrong direction and starting to collapse or, or, or whatever, whatever, you know, you might think about that. If you're able to build that local connection and that local community and just get to know your neighbors, you know, uh, even something super simple that, that I, I'm more than happy to talk about what we did is, you know, during COVID, I was still getting paid. Um, I know this was at peak when everybody was uncertain and it was going to kill everybody. And it was this awful, awful thing. Um, I was still getting paid. I still had money, but I know that the people that live above me share a wall with and across from me, you know, they, they didn't because we kind of vaguely talked about it. So something super simple is just, you know, inviting them over for dinner. It's, Hey, we're mm -hmm. making yeah. a crock pot stew and come hang out with us. Simple, you know, just get to know those people around you. And whether you agree with them politically or disagree, I think that's all irrelevant um, in this, at this point, uh, it seems to be the most relevant thing to a lot of people. To me, it's one of the more irrelevant things because things are going to get worse before they get better. And Absolutely. in that time where it gets worse, none of that stuff I think is going to matter. And mm -hmm, yeah. just helping people and building that community around you. I mean, that's something that we're trying to do. We're, we're looking at land to go hang out with all of our friends and help yeah. each other out and build something and hopefully help out the local community as well in any way that we can. And it's something that is becoming more popular, I believe, but also in a way more demonized. It's mm -hmm, yeah. It's really strange times. I know I keep saying that, but it's strange. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fascinating sort of development. And I guess you could, you could 
point out a lot of things. Like there's a lot of situations where with various coronavirus uh, related mandates, people have said like, well, you need to do this in order to keep working. And people have said, fine, I'll leave my job then. They're like, no, you're not allowed to leave the job. It's like, well, you actually presented that as not only an option, but <laughs> something that you seem like you're pushing me towards. So mm -hmm. I'm taking it. And yeah, this, this is kind of getting demonized. It, it reminds me just a little bit, not to make homeschooling the callback that we always go back to, but it reminds me a little bit of, of homeschooling when, when my parents pulled us out of school, uh, or rather were not schooling us to begin with. We were living uh, part of that time in a small town where um, the, the locals really wanted us to be part of the school system. They really wanted however many extra students uh, we were at that time to be in school so they could get money from us being enrolled there. And uh, they didn't want us for our athletic prowess. I was terrible uh, at sports, but they really wanted us to be in the system because us being in the system uh, had a, not only was it weird for us not to be there, but I think there was also this financial aspect to it. And I think that people who check out of failing systems today uh, are definitely going to be more and more demonized because you know, well, you'll be catching the blame potentially for checking out of a system that was failing before you were even born um, because you're trying to go build something separately. Um, and that is, that's just really easy to do. I think that's just human nature. You know, look for somebody to blame. And so I think that's something that we need to be aware of and ready for, uh, which also kind of ties back to our previous conversation about online uh, criticism and stuff. Uh, so yeah, I would say expect more of that. Um, Ex expect more of that, but uh, don't don't be don't be daunted by it. Mm. Uh, it is really imperative to. In many ways, I feel like it's, it's very imperative to the people who are throwing sticks and rocks at you that you set a good example for them, um, and then hopefully they come along at some point. Mm. If if you if you let them dissuade you from doing the right things. Uh, they may be, they may have nobody <laughs> to help them out later. <laughs> I like this. We're in this, we're in this on a wholesome note. I, Isaac, are you familiar with like the Milgram obedience experiments and just, uh... I'm very, yes. Very, we talk about that occasionally at T-Rex. Uh, my brother David likes to apply it to all kinds of things because yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, thought experiment. It's an even yeah. more fascinating practical experiment. Yeah, they're absolutely fascinating. And I apply that a lot to just things in my daily life, and especially how I deal with the public and people as a whole and how I process situations. It It's simultaneously depressing, but it also helps you uh, rationalize why people think and act the way they do. It's a little mm -hmm. depressing, but we won't get into it right now. That's a conversation for off air. Well, I think there's definitely a, a way to resist that. Uh, I think it's really important that people understand the Milgram experiment shows that it is easier to obey yes. a unpleasant command yeah. than uh, than it is to actually take a moral stand. So yes. one of the things that I think is really important about that experiment is to realize, yeah, that's your natural state. Um, and then once you realize that that is the case, then you you can decide, well, I don't like that. I want to push back against that. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I really want to enculturate into my kids. That's something that I really want to communicate to people um, in any way that I can is courage is an incredibly important aspect to life. Uh, all, all of the stuff that we've talked about throughout this podcast, um, maybe especially the stuff that got cut out, um, talking about heroes of the past, um, 
amazing things that have been done for culture and for civilization and the saving yeah. of human life. Like all of that required vast amounts of courage. And it usually also involved vast amounts of sacrifice, um, which is why courage was necessary. So the Milgram experiment is, is you know, on one hand, it is an example of the, the weakness and, and depravity of the human heart. But it also is a, a great example of the need for courage. Like teach your Absolutely. kids to have courage. Um, because only you can stop Milgram experiments. Yeah. 80% of people went for it and, you know, killed the, the, or killed or severely wounded the, the actor that they had, but also 20% of people didn't. Yeah. And that's 20% of people that will stand up to authority and say, no, we're yeah. not going to do this. And, and that experiment is something you can take to other people and be like, Hey, be the 20%, like yeah. take that 20%, make it 21. Yeah, absolutely. If that's all you can do, then that's all you can do. But you got to do that. <laughs> I I like that answer a lot, actually. It, it's good. It's good to hear. It's good to hear and confirm that there are other people that kind of have the same thought process when it comes to having kids or, or raising kids. Because you know, you 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 talk yeah. about um, you know homeschooling your kids and trying to figure out how they're going to learn. That's one thing I talked about with um, with uh, Bree. Uh, Lady Voluntary, Lady Voluntary, the woman that we did oh, the homeschooling lovely. episode with. I, you know, a lot of my questions with homeschooling, I think, are a lot of other people's questions with homeschooling. But when I think about how I want my kids to be raised, and I think about my education that I got in a public school, and I just think about all the things that I had to teach myself that I could have learned at a young age, you know, uh, and I don't want my daughter. To, to go through a similar thing where she's like mid twenties and she's just, you know, learning about things that she could have learned as a, as a kid to where it's not shocking to her. Um, you know, when she learns about different countries and that the U S doesn't have this super pure, awesome, righteous history, you know, um, <laughs> it, it, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I, I question why I didn't know that, um, Canada was involved in the war in 1812. I had no idea. The Canadians are taught that they beat us in the war. That's one thing that blows yeah. my mind. The Canadians that, that, that's something taught- we actually talked about. Like yeah. I, I was taught in school that we beat the Americans in the war of 1812. We didn't fucking well, exist in the war of 1812. How could, how could our hat beat us? Yeah. I don't understand. It's strange. <laughs> um, so, but it's, it's good to know. And it's good to confirm. One of the, one of the best things yeah. about this podcast is not only getting to talk with all these people that I'm just genuinely interested in as people, it's confirming that they are just awesome, legitimate people. And I think that you definitely, you fit that category. <laughs> and I'm super happy to, that you, that you came on and, uh, Super, we got to talk more more about the off the air stuff that everybody's going to be super jealous about that they'll never get to oh, hear. That was fascinating. Yeah, I, there's there's so much stuff that I want to ask you about that we didn't get to. I want to talk about art and drawing. Oh, we um, can. Yes, we still but, got uh, time. We'll have to we'll have to do it a different time. I'm afraid. Yeah, uh, it's okay. Because because uh, I got to run, but I do want to do that. We could do that on air. We could do that off air. Uh, yeah, it depends. Uh, depends on what you guys think. <laughs> Do a bit of both because I'm sure you know our audience would appreciate hearing us. And yeah, I mean, I don't have too much to hide. Too much, and anything we do, we can just take out like we, like we did here. Um, yeah, I mean, we we can do both. We can talk off the air and on the air. But I'm in a similar situation like you were in about 15 minutes. I got to go cook dinner because my wife's about to put yeah. the baby down, and it's our time to hang out. <laughs> cool, cool. 
Well, yeah. I gotta go uh, get ready to put kids to bed. So, of course, yeah, different time zones, different ages of kids. So, uh, yeah, yeah, time to go read. Uh, I think we're finishing my side of the mountain tonight. Oh, probably. Well, you, you guys have cool stuff to do. I I hear the cat scratching at the door, <laughs> so I'm going to let him in. And the the other cat's probably also there, so I'm gonna let her in as well. Um, I think your guys' things are a lot more important than mine. <laughs> <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> But, but yeah, um, I really liked this and I'm really looking forward to doing a part two. If you're amenable part two, oh, the I, I love chatting with you guys. My favorite part was of course, all the stuff that, uh, that got cut. Yeah. That was amazing. Yes. That was a can't great, I, I'm sorry, stuff. plebeians. You can't listen to that. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, you're, <laughs> you're not good enough. It's exclusive. Uh, well, we appreciate you coming on. Um, if you want, you can talk about where people can find you. I'm sure if they're listening, they already know where they can find you, but take uh, time. Talk at the it. moment. I think you can still Google us. I think you can still Facebook us for now. Uh, we haven't gotten yeah. completely zooked yet, but uh, yeah, just look us up to your X arms. Trex arms.com is how we say it. So you can spell yes. it. And uh, yeah. And keep, keep doing what you guys are doing. I appreciate the guides. Uh, I appreciate the lighthearted look that you have at the industry. Um, the, the, I think that you guys are a huge encouragement to people who need encouraging. And, um, I think that you guys are a little gentle, uh, an appropriate, uh, poke, but a very gentle poke to, you know, just a, a few little things that need poking. So uh, <laughs> I, I think I you do that really, really good naturedly and really acceptably. So, um, yeah, but yeah, the, the encouragement is the vast majority of what you do. I think, I think that's highly appreciated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We appreciate Thank you. That, that actually means a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the, the part two. And uh, you keep doing what you're doing. Uh, I'm not a, I'm no in no way financially obligated or sponsored in any way by T-Rex Arms. But I've ordered a ton of shit from you guys. And yeah. it has been amazing. And <laughs> I will continue to do so. I have your new host. Well, I appreciate that. Send, send feedback, of course, to our, our marvelous customer service team if you think there are things that need to be improved. I'm going to send awful non-constructive criticism. Fantastic. I'm going to pay... <laughs> this much attention to it (laughs) (laughs) all right thank you very much and uh yeah thanks for listening thanks have a great night okay bye